Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful time that we can be together, and we thank you for the blessing of being able to gather together around your word. What a gift, what a treasure you have given to us. And we thank you that not only have you given us your precious, holy, true, always reliable word, but you've also, Lord Jesus, you have poured out the Holy Spirit upon your church. And so we thank you for his ministry with us today, and we ask that as we spend this time together in the word, that we would not do so in our own power or ability, we would not approach these things in our flesh, but that the spirit would be ministering among us, and he would give us your mind concerning these things, Father. And he would help us not just to to understand the information we're going to talk about today, but most importantly, to see the significance of these things for our lives. That we see that these things are true and they radically change who we are and how we live. We know that the only way that we can truly understand those things, how your word changes us, is by the ministry of the Spirit. So again, we ask that he would be ministering in our midst today, teaching us, changing us, making us more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back in the the 18th century, uh, a Christian brother, a hymn writer named William Cooper, uh, wrote the words to a hymn that, that I think beautifully captures the transforming power of the death of Christ. The hymn is called Praise for the Fountain Opened, but it is more commonly known by the first line of the hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. How many of you have heard that hymn before. There's a fountain filled with blood. Cooper's lyrics read like this. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Amen? Lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Now, there are several other wonderful verses to that hymn. But, but one verse from that hymn in particular has been on my mind all week long. And that's the hymn's fourth verse. It reads like this. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And shall be till I die and shall be till I die. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And here I think Cooper captures what should be every Christian's response to our great salvation. When we see and we we truly understand the glory of what Christ has done for us, it should captivate us. It should overwhelm us. It should become the theme of our lives. People should be able to see, this is what I'm about. This is the theme of my life. But again, again, listen to how Cooper describes our salvation in that fourth verse. He doesn't simply say, redemption has been my theme. He says, listen, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. You see, what Cooper understood is that our salvation is more than just a legal transaction in which Christ died in our place. He understood that justification and propitiation and expiation and sovereign election and divine adoption and all those other legal terminology, I mean theological terminology, are more than just terms that describe some legal transaction. This work of of redemption is more than just a legal process. Instead, our redemption and all the facets of it and all the terms we use to describe it 
all of it was an expression of love. It was an expression of God's redeeming love. An expression of God's redeeming love. You see, Cooper realized that at the heart of redemption is a heart of love. At the heart of redemption is a heart of love. It was redeeming love that Cooper says. That's my theme and shall be till I die. And I think what, it, what so excited Cooper, and he wrote that song, that should excite us as well. Amen? I mean, think about it. As Christians, we have been loved by God. Does that excite your heart? We've been loved by God. Our salvation isn't just some legal transaction that took place. It's an expression of God's love for us. All the glorious benefits of our salvation, Christ's triumphant work to rescue and to redeem us are are simply and powerfully the outworking of God's love for us. The outworking of God's love for us. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, the apostle Paul writes this. He's he's talked about how we're we're dead in our sins and trespasses. Then he has these two great little words, but God, he says in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, and then listen to what he says. Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And all that grace flowed to us. Why? Because of the great love with which he loved us. In 1 John 4, 9 and 10, the Apostle John says this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. This is how we know God's love. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. John continues. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he, you know, remember how that verse goes? But he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent his son to take all the punishment, all the judgment, all the wrath that was due who? Due us. And John says, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. How do we know? We look at the cross. God loved us. God loves, present tense, us. And, And he loves us. Not because we're so lovely. Hate to rain on your parade this morning. Not because we're so lovely. Not because we are worthy of his love. He doesn't love us because of what we're bringing to the table or because of what we can do for him. No, he loves us. Why? Because he chooses to. Because he chooses to. In pure sovereign freedom, he chooses to love us. Out of a heart of love, out of a nature of love, in mercy and grace, he chooses to sacrifice and to give and to work, and to rescue us, to save us, to show us that we're loved. And as you read Cooper's hymn, as you sing Cooper's hymn, you realize he understood this. He looked at the cross, and he understood this. So he says, that's the theme of my life. That's what captivates me. God's redeeming love. Now, I bring all of this up this morning, and and it's been on that fourth verse of Cooper's hymn has been in my mind all week long because this truth that at the heart of redemption is a heart of love that's the theme of our text for this Sunday morning it's not just the theme of Cooper's life 
It's the theme of our text for this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, take them and turn over to the book of Ruth, chapter 4. Ruth, chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible this morning, we're going to be looking at the text. I want you to be able to follow along. So you can just slip up your hand. We've got some extras in the back. So if you need one, slip up your hand and uh, Jeff will come give you a Bible if you need one. Everybody's got it? It's the, the blessing of having technology. Even if you don't have your paper copy, you probably got it there on your phone. But here we are in Ruth chapter 4, the book's final chapter, and we just have this Sunday and next Sunday in this book of Ruth. But here, as we enter into the book's final chapter, we're going to enter into a courtroom. We're going to watch redemption on trial, as it were. But, but I want you to understand that this scene isn't just about legal matters and a legal transaction. Really, at the heart of this scene is a lesson on the heart of redemption. Uh, The storyteller, the author of Ruth, is teaching us a lesson here about redemption. And and he's going to use a courtroom, he's going to use a discussion about land, and he's going to use a less than desirable redeemer to teach us this lesson. But this lesson he's going to show us is that at the heart of redemption is a heart of love. At the heart of redemption is a heart of love. That's what we're going to find is the outcome of this courtroom scene. However, before we enter the courtroom scene this morning... Let me just quickly remind you how we got here to chapter 4. In chapter 3, we witness what I call the romance of redemption. You have Ruth and Naomi, these two destitute widows that we've been following through this story. And and they have found hope. They found hope in a kinsman redeemer, a man named Boaz. And and these two ladies, remember the story that we've been working through, they need hope. Um, Ruth, she is a, a poor, destitute Moabite widow. And she is a widow who has attached herself to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And because of that attachment, they have come now to the land of Bethlehem, to the country of Israel. She is a, Ruth is a foreigner in a foreign land. And she has come there to Bethlehem because she's committed to be faithful, to stand by her mother-in-law and care for her mother-in-law. But as we've seen, that was an easy commitment to make, right? Because Naomi isn't always the most pleasant person to be around, Right? I remember, and we laugh at that, but Naomi's a woman who had lost everything, right? Um, and I say this all the time. I'm going to say it again this morning. I'll probably say it next week. This really happened. This lady, Naomi, really endured and went through all of these losses that we've read about here in Ruth chapter 1. Remember, she had to leave her home there in the, hand of, in the land of Israel, in the, land of, in, in the town of Bethlehem. And she left that land because of famine, right? Couldn't provide for her family. So Elimelech, her husband, leads her and their two adult sons to leave the land. And they end up in what country? Remember, those of you who have been here? Moab. Now, was Moab the best place to land if you were an Israelite? No, they were hostile towards the Jewish people. But that's where they end up. And this family comes to Moab. And what's the first thing that happens when they get there? There's food, but what else happens? Yeah, the father, the patriarch, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. Then we see Naomi's two sons, they take Moabite wives, but for the next 10 years, what happens in their marriage? No babies, no children, 10 years of barrenness, 10 years of of not having grandchildren running around the house to lift Naomi's spirits. And then at the end of 10 years, what happened? Yeah, both the sons, Malon and Kilion, they die. Naomi has to watch her two sons. And remember, 
the way the narrator used the language there, her two babies. Remember how he used that unique term? She had to watch her two babies die. And so this woman has gone through all of this loss, leaving her homeland, losing her husband, watching her children go through 10 years of barrenness, no grandchildren, then watching her sons die and this family left without an heir, without a future. And she's watched all of this, and this loss has left her bitter. That's the way she describes herself in the end of chapter 1. Remember, as she returns home to Bethlehem, after over a decade of being away, she comes into Bethlehem, the women greet her, it's Naomi! Remember what she says back to them? Don't call me that name anymore, right? Don't call me Naomi, a name that means the pleasant one. Instead, call me what? Remember the name she chose? Mara, the bitter one. She says, call me Marah, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back. What does she say? Empty. The Lord has brought me back empty. And at that point, the end of chapter 1, things look pretty bleak for these two ladies, for Naomi and Ruth. However, their story turns with the entrance of Boaz. Through the providence of God, through the faithfulness of Ruth, Boaz, who was a wealthy Jewish landowner, entered the lives of these women. And with Boaz came hope. Remember, Boaz is a family member related to Naomi through her husband's side, through Elimelech's family line. But Boaz wasn't just any family member. He was what the Hebrews called a goel, a kinsman redeemer. He was one who could come to the aid of the poor and the destitute in that family and come to their aid for the purpose of rescuing and redeeming them. And in chapter 3, what we saw was a dramatic appeal from Ruth to Boaz for that very thing. For him to come and intervene and rescue their family. Now, this appeal came in the form of a marriage. Remember, Naomi sent Ruth to Boaz at the threshing floor to ask Boaz to embrace Ruth as his wife. But remember, Ruth sought more than that. Not just marriage. She used that marriage proposal to invite Boaz to not only be her husband, not only come and redeem her, but also show redeeming love for her family and redeem Naomi as well. And in the darkness of the threshing floor, as Ruth made that request to Boaz, we witness Boaz's heart of love for Ruth. Amen? We saw his love for her. He praised her. He comforted her. And he told her, remember, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. I will do for you all that you ask. But before wedding bells could ring in that scene, Boaz told her something else. Remember what he said? There's another guy. There's another Goel, a closer related Goel. And that man has the first right to care for you and Naomi. That man had the first right, the first, he was first in line to care for Elimelech's family. But that didn't mean, as Boaz told Ruth, that didn't mean he was dismissing her request. He told her that. But in the integrity of his love, he also told her, I'm going to take care of the matter. I'm going to make sure you're redeemed. Whether this guy does it, or I do it, you will be redeemed. He's going to take care of the matter. And the very next morning, he does that. And that's what brings us to court. So as we come into chapter 4, this this tension of redemption. Will Boaz marry Ruth and redeem her and her family? And as readers, that's what we're cheering for, right? Because we've come to, to really enjoy watching Boaz and Ruth and this romance that's going on. So that's what we're cheering for. But there's this tension. Will Boaz marry Ruth? Will he be the one to redeem her and her family or will this mysterious third party step in and do it? 
That's really the theme that opens chapter 4 here. Look at our text for this morning, starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. We read, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, so this other Goel, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he, Boaz, took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Now, looking at the scene, it's important to understand the, the centrality of the city gate in, in the life of a town like Bethlehem. Um, as commentator Robert Hubbard Jr. explains, everyone had to pass through that gate en route to the fields, the threshing floor, and other cities. In, in other words, that was the central thoroughfare there in Bethlehem. And so going to the city gate early in the morning, which is what Boaz is doing, it would have been the best way for Boaz to track down this guy, this other, this other redeemer. Again, early in the morning, the city gate, it would have been like I-5. It would have been like by 167. You know, everybody's going through the gate on their way to their work or to whatever city they were traveling to. But, but it wasn't just that the city gate was Bethlehem's main thoroughfare. That's not, just the, that's not the only reason that Boaz go, goes there. It was also the place where, where legal transactions took place. Again, this is Hubbard from his commentary. He explains, Ancient cities were very compactly built with narrow narrow streets. But the gate area provided a public place spacious enough for people to congregate. Like a modern town square or a plaza, it was both marketplace and civic center. But most importantly, he writes, it was the courthouse, the public place where officials sat to administer justice and to oversee legal transactions. That's what happened at the city gate, and that's what Boaz is seeking there that morning. He'd gone to the city gate not only to find this redeemer, but also to assemble a court to deal with this matter of redemption. And the author tells us that Boaz assembles all the necessary people. Not only does he track down this other redeemer, but he also gathers ten elders, and that was probably the number needed for a legal quorum. And he has everybody sit down, and they're going to hear what's going to happen. Now, Before we watch this little courtroom drama play out, I want to take a moment and talk a little bit about this this other guy, this other Goel. Again, according to the Old Testament law, it was the closest related Goel, the closest related kinsman redeemer who was the first in line to care for a destitute family member. Um, They had the first right. They were the first... They had the first place. But they could pass off that right. If they chose not to exercise it, they could pass it off to the next one in line. And that's why Boaz is seeking this guy out. He wants to see, are you going to exercise your rights? Or are you willing to pass them off so that I can exercise those rights? Will you care for Naomi and Ruth as their Goel? Or are you going to back out of that responsibility? That's the question. And the author gets give us a little clue about how this is all going to play out when he first introduces us to this other redeemer. Look again at verse 1. We read that Boaz, seeing the other redeemer, says what? Turn aside. What does the text say? Turn aside, friend, and sit down here. That's the way several of our English translations bring it across. And they bring it across as though Boaz is being friendly. He's being cordial. Come over here, friend. Have a seat. But that's not really an accurate picture of what Boaz is saying. You see, Boaz, in addressing this other redeemer, he uses a very strange title. He he doesn't simply use the word for friend. Instead, he uses a rather rare phrase. Turn aside, and in the Hebrew, it's turn aside, Poloni Almoni. 
It's a phrase you're not going to forget, hopefully. It's a strange-sounding phrase, isn't it? Turn aside, Poloniamoni. It's a funny-sounding phrase, but it's also a surprising way for Boaz to address this guy. You see this phrase in the Hebrew, Poloniamoni. It was a phrase that could mean a certain one, but most scholars believe the best way to translate this phrase here is Mr. So-and-so. Mr. So-and-so. So Boaz is saying to this guy, come over here, Mr. So-and-so. Come over here, whatever your name is, and have a seat. Now, does Boaz not know this guy's name? Is he speaking out of ignorance? No. Boaz knows all about this guy. He knows what he looks like. He knows his place in the family line. And as, I, as we'll see as we work through this, I think he also knows what makes this guy tick. And that day at the gate, he probably does use the guy's name when he called him over to sit, have him sit down. But most scholars believe that the storyteller, the author of Ruth, replaced that man's name with this title, Mr. So-and-so. Mr. So-and-so. You see, this phrase, Polonial Moni, used in the Old Testament, is used to intentionally keep things anonymous. Uh, it's a label that's designed to convey nothing. <laughs> nothing about a person. It, it was used to keep a person's identity ambiguous. So why would the storyteller do that? Why keep this other redeemer anonymous? Well, chapter 4, and we'll see this this Sunday and next Sunday, is a chapter full of names. Full of names. And the author records those names in order to celebrate and praise those people. But this guy, this guy in a chapter full of praiseworthy people who are named, is not named at all. And what it seems like the author has done is show his condemnation and his judgment for this man's actions by refusing to even give his name. It's like the storyteller is saying, you don't deserve even to show your face in this story. So we'll just call you Polonial Moni. We'll just call you Mr. So-and-so. You're just a Mr. So-and-so. And as we'll see, the storyteller is right. This guy doesn't deserve to be named because he really, he really lacks what is needed in a redeemer. So after Boaz gets all this assembly together, after the elders sit down and Mr. So-and-so sits down, Boaz steps up and he begins to present the issue. And Boaz launches into this. So you look at the text here, like a skilled prosecutor. With wisdom, he crafts his approach both to expose the heart of this other redeemer, this Mr. So-and-so, and also to secure his own place as Ruth's husband and the provider for Naomi. Look at Boaz's opening remarks. Look at verse 3. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would, off, would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. I'm next in line. Now, as we read through that, what key item, or better say, what key person is missing from that whole discussion? Yeah, Ruth. I mean, there's no mention anywhere of marrying Ruth. And instead of mentioning Ruth, Boaz shares some information that's brand new to the story, right? We didn't know anything about this. We didn't know that Naomi has this land, and she's looking to sell it. Now, this land belonged to Elimelech, her, her deceased husband. It's, it's land through his family. But Naomi is looking to sell it in order to provide some, some funds, some finances for herself and for Ruth. And again, remember, these two women, Ruth and Naomi, are destitute. In, in that culture, if you didn't have a father, if you didn't have a husband in the picture or sons in the picture, a, as a woman, you weren't left with a lot of options. You couldn't just go out in that culture and get a job. So Naomi is trying to use whatever resources she has 
to provide for them. So, so she's ready to sell off the family farm, so to speak. And it's a very big deal to sell land as a Jewish person. For Naomi to sell off the family land shows the seriousness of their poverty, the seriousness of their situation. You see, in Israel, land is everything. To Jew, land is everything. Remember, back in the days of Joshua, when the Israelites conquered the land of Canaan, the land was divided up, and it was given to the tribes, and through the tribes went to the clans, and through the clans went to the family. So each family in the days of Joshua ended up with land. And that land, it was seen as a gift from God and a responsibility before God. It was an important part of your identity as an Israelite. So to sell off your land, that was a serious move. But that's how desperate Naomi is. That's how destitute she and Ruth are. But God, in his grace provided for his people, Jewish people like Naomi, who found themselves in such desperate situations. You see, one of the primary functions of the Goel, one of the primary functions of a kinsman redeemer, was to buy the land of a destitute family member, pay them the money for that land, and then guess what they did with the land? Turn around and gave it right back to them. Turn around and gave it right back to them. So the Goel would pay the price of the land, you'd have that money, they would redeem it, and then they would turn around and give you back the land so that it would stay with you and your family. That way the family could get the finances they needed, but not lose that which was so connected to their identity as a Jewish person. And and this land redemption law, that was one of the key functions of a Goel as set forth in the law of God. So Boaz starts with this. He starts by asking Mr. So-and-so, are you going to step up and are you going to redeem Naomi's land? Will you buy that land and then return it to her for her good? That's what Boaz is really going after with that opening statement. And how does Mr. So-and-so respond? Look at the end of verse 4. What does he say? And he says, I will redeem it. I'll do it. Now before you start to think, Oh, what a nice guy this Poloni Almoni is. What a nice guy Mr. So-and-so is. Let me unpack for you what's happening here. Let's say Mr. So-and-so was to buy the land, like he said, give Naomi the money, and then give the land back to her. That'll that'll help out Naomi, right? And it'll be a nice little boost for Mr. So-and-so's reputation in that community. What What a nice, generous guy he is. But here's the catch. Naomi is a widow. Is she a young widow? No, she's an older widow. And right now, her family has how many heirs? Zero. So when she dies with no heir in her family, guess who would end up with the land? Mr. So-and-so. That's right. It would go back to the last guy who purchased it. So you see, this is a short-term loan for Naomi, but with really high interest. She'll get the land, but as soon as she dies, because she has no heir, Mr. So-and-so gets it right back. So you can imagine Mr. So-and-so is thinking, hey, this is my lucky day. Here I am. I'm just walking into Bethlehem. Boaz grabs me and says, hey, check out this sweet deal. You know, buy this land, build your reputation. In the end, you'll end up building your portfolio as well. So Mr. So-and-so jumps at the deal. But again, I really think Boaz knows this guy. He knows what makes him tick. Like a skilled prosecutor, he has just set him up to expose what's really driving this guy's heart. Now, as readers of the book, um, when we come to this part of the text, we're, we're kind of feeling like this guy is a threat, right? He's a threat to the redemption we want to see. We want to see Boaz and Ruth together. But now we have this discussion of land, and it seems like Ruth has been pushed entirely to the side. So it feels like there's a, a threat here as we're working through the text. 
But again, I want to assure you, Boaz knows exactly what he's doing. Look at verse 5. Then Boaz said what? The day you buy the land, you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, and here he drops the bomb, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. In other words, Boaz says, if you're going to buy the land, you need to take Ruth as well in order to marry her, and not just to marry her, to have a child with her and raise that child up as a Limelech's heir. That way the land will remain with that family just like God intended. That's what Boaz is saying. And it's beautiful. You see, Boaz sees not just the law of land redemption through the, the, through the Goel. He sees not just this law but he also sees God's purpose in this law. And I bring that up, that Boaz sees not just the law itself, not just the letter, but the spirit of it, the purpose of it. Because as you study through the scriptures, there's no specific law demanding that a Goel marry a destitute family member in order to redeem them. There's no specific law saying that. Some have, as they've studied through the book of Ruth, they've seen the book of Ruth as an example of what's called leveret marriage, and that's another thing that you find in the Old Testament. And there a living brother would marry his deceased brother's widow and father a child with that widow in order to raise up a son for that deceased brother. But nowhere in the scripture is that given as a responsibility of a kinsman redeemer. Nowhere in the scripture is that given as a responsibility of the Goel. Leveret marriage is not what's going on here. What's going on here is that Boaz is calling Mr. So-and-so not simply to embrace the letter of the law, but to embrace the spirit of the law as well. You see, the role of the Goel was to help. The role of the Goel was to redeem. And buying this land just to get it back once Naomi dies isn't really helping anybody. It's not really redeeming anybody. That's not the purpose of the law. The Goel was to redeem the land so it could remain with the destitute family. And there was only one way that could happen in this situation. The only way that that could happen in this situation was to take Ruth as well with the land. And since she was the only family member who would be able to bear children, have a child with her, and as Boaz says, perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So you see, Boaz looks Mr. So-and-so right in the eyes, and he says, this is the real cost of redemption. You'll have to embrace not just the letter of the law, Mr. So-and-so. You'll have to embrace the spirit as well. Are you willing to do what it really takes to function as this family's go out? Are you truly willing to pay the price of redemption? Will you marry her and make sure this family keeps their land? Now, as Boaz makes that point in front of all of those assembled there at the gate, you need to picture a look of pain on the face of Mr. So-and-so. Because his sweet deal has just turned sour for his selfish heart. Look at his hasty retreat. Look at verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, What? Sure, I'll do that. I cannot redeem it for... Whoa, 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 whoa. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. This guy can't backpedal fast enough from this deal he just agreed to. And look at the text. He makes it clear twice. I can't do this. I can't be the Goel if it means marrying Ruth and raising up an heir for Elimelech as part of the deal. And again, look at the reasons why. The reason why. I cannot redeem it for myself. Why? Yeah, lest I impair my own inheritance. In other words, I'm not willing 
to really make the sacrifice that it takes for the redemption of this family. I was willing, as long as it turned out for my gain. But when it starts to affect my bottom line, when I have to take this family on and raise it up for another man, Mr. So-and-so says, I'm out. I'm out. And I think that's the response that Boaz is counting on. You see, I think Boaz approaches things this way, bringing the land up first and then bringing Ruth into the equation. Because he knew that this, although this guy was a redeemer in title, he wasn't a redeemer at heart. Although he was a redeemer in title, he wasn't a redeemer at heart. Boaz knew that he had something that Mr. So-and-so didn't. Love. Love for Ruth and Naomi and their family. And that's what fueled Boaz's desire to redeem. He was willing to pay the price. He was willing to embrace the cost. He was willing to do whatever it took because he loved Ruth and he loved her family. Again, at the heart of redemption is a heart of love. And I think that's the message we're being shown here. In this story, this Mr. So-and-so, this Polonial Moni, really stands as the foil to Boaz. Um, He is the contrast to Boaz, especially to Boaz's heart. And again, what's the nature of Mr. So-and-so's heart? He's focused on who? I'll do it as long as I can get that land back in the end, but when I'm going to jeopardize my inheritance, I'm out of here. Yeah, he was a self-focused individual. He was a selfish individual. He cared about himself and his bottom line. And what we've seen in Boaz and what we see here and what we've seen through this whole book is Boaz is just the opposite of that, isn't he? Is Boaz a greedy guy? Not at all. We've seen Boaz be abundantly generous, wonderfully kind. We've seen Boaz be this godly man with a loving heart who is willing to do whatever it takes to redeem this family. So in this story, Boaz is no Poloni Almoni. He's not a nameless pretender. He's the real deal. He's a redeemer, not just in title, but in heart. A redeemer in heart. And in verse 8, we see him receive the right to redeem Naomi's family. Now, the manner in which he is given this right is rather, rather different. Mr. So-and-so tells Boaz in, in verse 8, buy it for yourself, buy the land for yourself, and then he gives Boaz what? His sandals. You see that there in verse 8. That strange practice is explained in the previous verse, verse 7. Look at it there. We read, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the matter of attesting in Israel. Now, it was interesting studying this out. Most scholars aren't sure how in the world this custom came about or why sandals are used. Uh, the best guess that, that I could come up with as I read and studied was that in the Old Testament, setting your foot on something was a symbol of ownership. So, so giving up your sandals, which, which you used to set your foot on a piece of land, uh, would be seen as a symbolic gesture that the property was no longer yours. You couldn't stand on it anymore and claim it because you'd given up your sandals. But again, that's the best guess that I could see as I, as I looked at a lot of different options. But whatever the symbolism here, we're, we're told that through this, Mr. So-and-so makes it clear that Boaz now possesses the right to redeem this family. And with that, Mr. So-and-so, this Polonial Moni, exits the scene. I mean, this anonymous guy, whoever he was, fades off into history. And, and as I was thinking about this, it's just like Orpah. Remember her back in chapter 1? And she was really Ruth's foil there. But just like Orpah, Mr. So-and-so wasn't willing to embrace the cost. And so what happens? They get pushed aside, pushed out of this story of redemption. So there goes Mr. So-and-so, just this nameless, selfish guy who blew it. No heart for redemption means no place in the triumph 
of redemption. And, and that triumph is what we witness next. The trial of redemption has now turned to the triumph of redemption. With Mr. So-and-so's sandals in hand, look at the powerful de- declaration that Boaz makes in verses 9 and 10. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses. This day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belongs to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon, her two sons. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Twice Boaz says that, right? You are witnesses this day. He opens with it and he closes with it. And this is courtroom language. Boaz is making clear here the legality of his claim. In in ancient society, he didn't draw up paperwork and then take it to a notary. What you did is you called for verbal witnesses and they became verbal notaries of the legitimacy of your claim. That's what's happening here. Boaz is asking the court of elders. He's asking all the people that have gathered there at the gate to be witnesses. To, to testify that all that he is pursuing is now legally binding. And notice that all that Boaz is pursuing. He doesn't just say, I'm buying Naomi's land, does he? What does he say? He says, I'm redeeming everything, right? You are witnesses this day, verse 9, that I have bought from the hand of Naomi what? All that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Malon and Kilion. He's buying, he's redeeming everything. And remember, the role of the Goel was to buy it, give them the money for it, and then do what? Give it right back to them. Give the property right back to them. That's how far, I want you to understand this, that's how far Boaz is willing to go. I'm going to pay for all of it, not just the land, but everything that they have. So I can turn around and do what? Give it right back to them. Give it right back to them. But that's not all that he's calling these people to witness. Boaz also says, I'm not just buying the land and the property and all the possessions and giving it right back. I'm also marrying Ruth. Notice the language here. He says, I have bought Ruth to be my wife. Now, I want you to make sure that you understand. Boaz isn't talking about paying a bride price for Ruth or or treating her like some kind of piece of property. He's simply stating that by doing this, he has purchased the right to marry her. In other words, nobody can accuse him of swooping in and stealing Ruth away. He is pursuing this marriage to Ruth with full integrity. Isn't that what we saw of him in chapter 3? He's a man of integrity, right? And here we see it again. I'm pursuing this marriage to Ruth with full integrity. But notice he's not simply pursuing her to marry her. He also makes very clear here, and he's calling everybody to witness, that he intends to have a son with her and to raise that son up as a limelech's. Heir. Not his own, but Elimelech's heir. His goal, he says, is to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead, and he's talking about Elimelech, may not be cut off from among his brothers, that there would be a legacy there with Elimelech. Not be cut off from his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You see, Boaz was willing to make the sacrifice that Mr. So-and-so wasn't. He's willing to take on the cost to sacrifice his own future inheritance in order to fulfill this role of kinsman redeemer. Again, Boaz is a redeemer not just in name only, not just in title, but he's a redeemer at heart. And the heart of Boaz's redemption for Ruth and Naomi is a heart of love for this family. And everybody there at the gate sees it. Notice the beautiful response here of the witnesses. We'll start to wrap up with this. They celebrate redemption's triumph. 
they celebrate, look at both Boaz and his new bride, Ruth. Look at verses 11 and 12. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said what? We are witnesses. And then may the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephraim and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. First notice the confirmation of Boaz from both the crowd that's gathered at the gate and the elders. They all say we are witnesses. They are all giving their their approval, their legal and public approval to Boaz's actions. But they don't stop with just giving approval. They don't say, yes, we recognize this claim. It's legal. They don't stop with that. What else do they do? What do they do? Yeah, they call for a blessing from God upon Boaz and Ruth. This is their way of praising them, of praising Boaz and his action, praising Ruth and her entrance into this marriage and praising their, their family. We're going to look at this in more detail next Sunday, but, but they compare Boaz and Ruth to some of the great saints in Israel's history. And, and it, there's some powerful irony here. Instead of standing nameless like Mr. So-and-so, what happens to Boaz and Ruth? They, they get put next to the Hall of Famers, really, in Israel's history. First, these witnesses ask God to make Ruth like Rachel and Leah. If you remember, who were those two women? Remember from Israel's history? They were Jacob's wives, right? They were Jacob's wives. And with those two ladies and their two handmaids, from them came who? All the 12 tribes of Israel. So, so these two ladies are really the, the foundational mothers for the nation of Israel. And here, all of the people, the elders included, are asking God to make who? Ruth, like one of those ladies. They're asking God to make Ruth like one of the greatest in their nation's history. And it's not just impressive here because of who they're comparing Ruth to. It's impressive because of who Ruth is. Who is Ruth? Where is she from? Is she a Jew? No, she's a Moabite. She's a foreigner. And and all throughout the book, we've been reminded of that, right? How many times? Ruth the... Moabite. We've heard that over and over again, but we don't hear that here, do we? No, here, because of the com- her commitment to Naomi, because of the redeeming love of Boaz, the people are here embracing Ruth as one of their own. They have welcomed in this foreigner, and they've asked God to bless her and make her like one of the greatest in their nation's history. It's really a powerful declaration of what is happening to Ruth through Boaz's redeeming love. The people are embracing her and praising her. And notice the people call for a similar blessing for Boaz. They pray that God would bless his godly character, Boaz's godly character, and give him great renown among the people. And then they also ask that God would make Boaz's family line great. Now remember, Boaz has stepped into this situation in order to redeem whose family line? Elimelech. But here, the people who have just witnessed that loving sacrifice, witnessed Boaz's commitment, ask that God would bless not Elimelech's line, but Boaz's line. And they asked that God would make Boaz's line like that of Perez. And we'll talk about this more next week. But that's the family line through whom the people of Bethlehem came to be. So all these people who are gathered at Bethlehem, that's, this is their founding patriarchal figure. Make his house like Perez's house. Perez's through Judah. And that line is the line of Israel's kings. But we'll get more into that next week. But look at the last thing that they say. They ask that all of this would happen 
because of or through what? The offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. What's been a key point of tension in this story? Yeah, no children. All the other Naomi had sons, but what happened to them? Yeah. And Ruth, what's been her condition? Ten years of barrenness. No children throughout this story. No heirs throughout this story. But this crowd is asking and believing that God is going to change all of that. They see this powerful triumph of redemption in Boaz's redeeming love for Naomi. And they are trusting God to bring the story all the way home. All the way home. May Yahweh provide you with a child. May Yahweh rescue this family and make it great. So will he? Will Yahweh do that or will their words prove empty? You have to come back next week. (laughs) So we finish the book. But let me just wrap things up for this morning uh, by just drawing your attention back to, to why the author even gave us this courtroom drama in the first place. As we've seen throughout this book, as we've been studying this book, the author is very intentional about what he tells us and how he tells it to us. So why does the author take all this time to give us this legal scene between Boaz and Mr. So-and-so? Why show us this courtroom drama? Why not just tell us, okay, Boaz settled the matter and give us one more scene of him interacting with, with Ruth or one scene of him interacting with Ruth and Naomi? Why do this? Well, again, I think the author has brought us into this scene the scene of contrast between two quote-unquote redeemers. Not just to show us how redemption happened, but to teach us about what's at the heart of redemption. Again, what was the difference in these two men? Why did one end up backing out while the other one stood faithful? The difference is that one was willing to pay the cost because of a heart of love. The difference was Cooper's theme, right? Redeeming love has been my theme, he sang. And that's the theme here. Redeeming love. The author here has shown us the power of it. And it makes all the difference in the world. It made the difference between these two men. It made the difference in the outcome of the courtroom. And it made the difference in this story. But only does it make the difference in this story, brothers and sisters. It's what makes the difference in our lives as well. Amen? The glory and wonder of our lives as Christians is that God has loved us. Amen? God has loved us. But God showed his love for us in, while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. God said, I love you. Look at the cross. Look at my heart for you. So don't ever lose sight of that, brothers and sisters. Don't ever lose sight of that. Don't ever lose your grip on that. Don't ever start to think, ho-hum, that's some truth we know. We learned it in Sunday school. What's the big deal? Let me tell you about the problems I've got in my life. Don't lose your grip on that. Don't ever start to look at, I think some of us who really devote ourselves to or enjoy theology have a tendency to do this. Don't start to look at your salvation as just some kind of legal transaction. You know, A plus B equals C. So much more than that. It's rescue driven by love. Rescue driven by love. Don't ever forget that at the heart of redemption is a heart of love. 